y'all, Anita here. One of the best things about being on the 2018 Joko Cruise was getting the chance to sit down on a giant boat and talk to some amazingly creative people. I hope you enjoy listening to these special conversations as much as I loved having them. We're releasing one a week as a special bonus for you amazing listeners. And remember, we do need your help to keep making this podcast, so please consider joining our podcast community for exclusive perks and bonus content at d.rip slash femfreak. Our bonus interview this week is with Patrick Rothfuss, who not only writes epic fantasy novels and wins awards for them, he has an epic beard. Is there an award for that? Hi, Patrick Rothfuss. Hey there. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. I'm so excited to have you on. I I was going to say tickled pink, and then I felt really awkward about that phrasing, but... uh, Sure, sure. Yeah, let's just pretend that didn't happen. Yeah, let's (laughs) skate right over the top of that. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you, what do you do? What are you known for? I used to say I'm mostly known for writing big, fat fantasy books, but... Uh, these days, a lot of folks actually know me because of like role playing and Dungeons and Dragons, because I I'm sort of the best gamer Ronin in town. Like I guest in with Critical Role or uh, or the Misclicks and a lot of these people that play D and D online. Oh, cool! Um, I get to hang out with them sometimes. I come in with a cameo character, and some of these have like delightful big readerships or uh, viewerships or listenerships. And so a lot of people have never glimpsed my books or don't even know I'm a writer. I'm just that D&D guy. Well, so what are the books that you are known for? Um, the first one's called The Name of the Wind, and the second one is called The Wise Man's Fear. All right, all um, right. And I suppose there's uh, The Slow Regard of Silent Things, too. Uh, don't start there. Don't don't read that one first. <laughs> um, I just started playing D&D for the first time. Really? Yeah, I played like one and a half sessions because I played the creator character session that our DM turned into like a game, like an actual game. But yeah, it's interesting. It's like, I, I am not an RPG person in mm-hmm. general, um, in video games or otherwise. And so it's been a really interesting experience to come into this and be like, I'm like, I'm not good at telling stories and I'm not good at coming up with things on the fly. And they're insisting that I'm doing a decent job. So they're either just really nice friends or I'm doing okay. Well, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of, if, if you come into uh, D&D or one one of the tabletop role-playing games kind of later in life, it is a little trickier because you got to shuck off some of you know, some of the the social uh, the social fear. It's sort of like if you become an improv comic at the age of 60, it's probably going to be a little trickier as opposed to, uh, I think, a lot of people who come to it early, especially if you do it as little kids. Because, uh, like, that's all little kids do is constant improvisational yeah, role play. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's been it's been really fun, and I'm with a super supportive group of people who, like, most of them have played a bunch, and some of them are like lapsed, and so uh, they're happy they're happy to answer my five thousand questions I ask every round. I'm tr- still trying to get used to an hour is one minute of time. Right. When you're like. Why are we not? Oh, what's happening? How progress? <laughs> progress. Um, and I refuse to understand the uh, numbers and the math part of it because I'm like, why are the numbers on my paper not equal to the numbers that are the thing that we're doing? No, I'm just like, I'm going to just build a really cool character. <laughs> There's so many different systems out there, and some of them are very mathy, um, and some of them are, you know, very easily digestible or you can play them real quick and some of them are pure storytelling like the one i on the farthest end of the spectrum 
is, uh, in my opinion, is The Adventures of Baron von Munchausen, where your entire character creation is writing a name down on a piece of paper and putting it in front of you, and that's it. Character creation is done, and then you sit around and you tell stories about your fabulous adventures with the other people at the table, and there's no dice and no randomness and no anything. It's just pure Is there any structure? There, it's very, very loose structure, but see, I as someone new to this, that feels I want constraints. It, like it's horrifying to a lot of people yeah, who aren't innate like, bullshitters. I just played. Um, have you played um, Ghost Court? That one I haven't. Um, so it's a game where you pretend there's a judge and then you're a plaintiff and there's the defendant and you, one of them is usually a ghost. I and, haven't heard about. Yeah, this. so it's it's you know like it's a small like party game or whatever, uh, and it's it's cute and it's fun. But I felt like it, for me, I don't like to do that much improv, mm. and so there's a lot of like. And he, here's the other thing is I play games with professional game developers and designers right. and like comedians. And so right. like the bar is really high. And so I'm like, I'm not going to be able to make anybody laugh right now. And so it feels a little more difficult. I think if you're playing with normal people, you might have a better time. It was fun to watch though, because everyone was so hilarious. But for me, I want a little more constraint in what I'm supposed to be doing so that I have a, a launching off point. It, ex- exactly. The uh, One of the other storytelling games, not a role-playing game, that's uh, sort of on the other end of that spectrum is uh, Once Upon a Time, uh, where it's a, it's a card game. You know, it's like you have in your hand like characters or plot events like turned into a frog or you know you know evil evil princess or you know sword in a stone and so you start telling a story but you're trying to play the cards out of your hand to empty your hand so that i I, is what i do with most people if they kind of want to try a storytelling game but they're not like improv trained or they're not professional storytellers. A little a little structure is yeah, very, yeah. very It's very helpful for new yeah. people. So backstage, we were getting into just chatty chat times and you started talking about the ethical responsibility of storytelling. Oh, and I made a note of that because obviously I am very interested in this idea and think that it's crucial, but I actually stopped you from finishing your story because <laughs> I wanted to record ah. it. Uh, I'd, I'd be curious as someone who is who is a professional storyteller, like how you feel about that or how that's evolved in your career. Man, I I will I will talk a day about this. Um, well, we only got 30 minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to think where it started because in some ways it's stuff I've always been thinking about in little little bits and pieces because you want to tell a good story. And it's a job of work just to tell a story, to have like all the pieces come together. And not a fancy story either, just a simple story told well. There's a lot of craft that has to go into that. If, if you're doing it professionally or if you're writing a, a novel or, or, or something for publication, there's just, there's a thousand ways to do it wrong. But you can effectively accomplish an entertaining story that's full of, I I think of it as poison, personally, especially now that I'm a parent. And I think back on a lot of the books that I've read and a lot of these things which I did not realize were really awful sentiments 
just sort of, you know, and it's not like I was reading Mein Kampf, you know, and, 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 and I'm like, Ooh, what a, what a fantastic adventure story. And I want to, I want to do this. Let me think here. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to reel it back because occasionally now I do a panel called, um, the ethical responsibility of a storyteller at, at conferences, at, conventions at, and stuff? at cons when yeah. they'll let me do it. And I bring in you know, authors or whoever really wants to talk on the subject. And I pitch it like this. And I say, when The Princess and the Frog came out, Disney's movie, uh, 50 children went to the hospital with salmonella because they went out and they put their mouths on frogs. And so whose fault is that? And like no one would ever think, ooh, this was a plot by Disney to like <laughs> to like to kill children, right? However, the fact remains, Disney made a story, people consumed the story, and then took actions based on the story that were detrimental to them. And that's a very clear line. It's, it reminds me of the like when Jaws came out, how the increase in fear of sharks was yes. very real. That's it's exactly yeah. it. And so people hate sharks, and people, you know, it was it had an impact on tourism. It yeah. had an impact on on the ecology of the oceans because suddenly everyone is like, let's kill the sharks and keep our babies safe. But that story is not true. Mm-hmm. It just looks true. And yeah, you know, I believe that that humans. You know, there was always a lot of talk about what people, what what makes people people. Why are we special, or are we special? And everyone wants to feel special. And they're like, well, we're the tool users. And you look at animals, and you're like, well, actually, no, we're not the only tool users. And you go, well, we have language. And then you look, and you go, well, if you if you mean sounds to communicate information, no. And then we're like, well, real language, not just bird tweets. And then, like, a gorilla can sign at us. And you're like, oh, okay, so what is it? And I think that it's, you know what mirror neurons are? I'm going down a deep rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tangent. I'm going to bring it back, though. Trust All right, me. I believe you. This, okay. This will be the You're the only the person that would, would trust me. Let's you don't do know me well enough to know I don't. That I can shaggy dog my way into a dark hole I and might just be sick again. enough that I'm like, just do it. Just do my job for me. Thanks. So, okay, wait. So what is it? Mirror neurons? Uh, there's something uh, in, in the brain called mirror neurons. And... Uh, animals like chimpanzees have a bunch of them because that's what leads to monkey see, monkey do behavior. Mm -hmm. They see something happen and then they're like, oh, you know, Joe monkey just like took a stick and he poked it into the termite mound and he gets termites. I would like termites. I will do that thing. And that means that information spreads through example through their society. So I'm a communication studies major Ah. and, um, the actual answer to the question that you that you're putting forth at least at the time that I was studying I don't know if there's big big revelations is that like humans communicate through symbols and animals don't so we know that the letters uh B O T T L means this thing in my hand, um, but animals can't make those kinds of connections. It's, we 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 don't. They, animals don't have symbolic learning. It's it's the the realm of icon. Yeah, yeah. and and oh, see, that, that's great. I hadn't thought in those terms, but that absolutely that that fits with with where I'm heading. Great, because um, you know uh, these these other primates, these these apes, are, um, have way more of these mirror neurons than other animals. But we have 10 times more than like chimpanzees. And this means that like we don't just have a little monkey see, monkey do. We have so much of it. And my theory, my my tinfoil hat theory that is borne up by a surprising amount of evidence is that 
one of the things that sets us apart is that we don't merely have to see a thing uh, because they found out that humans are wired for language. If you're exposed to language as a child, you absorb it. Mm -hmm. I believe that one of the things that makes us different is that we are compelled to tell stories. We live in story and we learn from story probably because we have this symbol, this icon, this archetype ready brain and so we don't have to look at somebody with termites because and and here I'll, I'll take it out of the realm of, of of whatever but imagine you go back I don't know 10,000 years 50,000 years and Oog comes back to the cave and he's all bloody and like what does he talk about he's like I was by some trees and I heard a noise and like panther and it's it sucked and it sucked it sucked <laughs> it's, it super sucked like panther and it sucked what does everyone learn it's the 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 benefit of experience without the burden of experience and like oog can fucking die then but the tribe has like learned some <laughs> super useful shit trees plus noise equals run your ass off because you remember oog right and i i went to a weird caveman place with that yeah i mean but, but think of yeah. the people you've known who have gone through bad shit like in their lives and maybe it's a, a breakup maybe it's their dog died when you run into them the people in your tribe mind you friends you run into somebody what do they do? Like, how, how you doing? And what happens? They will tell you the story of what happened to them. It's almost like, and they are compelled to. If you're like me, sometimes, sometimes people get stuck and like they can't get that story out of them. They can't move past that story. But typically, if you tell the story, you tell the story, you get catharsis and then you settle your shit down and you can move on with your life. And I think that's a biological imperative for humans because we're actually disseminating this valuable information because bad shit happening to you, your body is like, this is dangerous. This is trauma. Yeah. I want to share it with people. And then, and only then, is it evolutionarily advantageous for you to let go of it and move on with your life. I'm just going to throw on the caveats of like, sometimes it's not that simple. But, oh, no, absolutely but not. I'm, I am fully with you in stories are so important to our existence. And it's how we pass down culture. Yeah. Right? It's generation to generation to generation tells these myths. Yeah. And you tell these wild stories yeah. about like the, the whatever... They're not real stories, but they're story. They're the myths that you tell generations in order to keep them safe. Yeah, you can't cross the river because of the evil dragons that are over there. Whatever, right? Yep. I am not clearly not the storyteller in this <laughs> uh, in this conversation. And so for me, as stories became more and more a part of corporate world mm -hmm. and became more attached to capitalism, stories changed. Mm -hmm. And they weren't just used as entertainment and they weren't just used as education. They started to become a thing that was used to sell <laughs> concepts, to sell politics, mm -hmm. to sell lifestyles, to sell, to sell, right? To, to sell fucking Tide detergent. Yeah. Exactly. And the combination of the media conglomerates getting smaller and smaller and smaller and corporations taking over our primary storytelling communication modes, um, you have this, for me, this tension of like, but the media is one of our socializing factors, right? Whether people want to fucking admit it or not, and I hear every day that they don't, yeah. but that like, you know, religious groups and parents, like family and schools and peers and media are pieces of how we grow and learn and get our values. And so the fact that people will be like, the media doesn't affect me. I'm like, what? 
because you are some magic person that is made of Teflon and it just bounces off, yes, right? You, like you, you sprung yeah. fully formed from the head of Zeus, yeah. And you, you, were, <laughs> you, you never grew or changed or learned. Yeah, you were perfect just as you were. And so it's interesting to me the idea of ethical storytelling is feminist frequencies work is predicated on the fact that the media is a tool and it can be used to promote values. And those values I can agree with or not agree with. Um, and it doesn't have to be like, it doesn't have to be a story about politics. It could just be having, it can just be Black Panther, where yeah. you just have a, a cast of all black folks with different experiences and different backgrounds to show the depths of humanity in a community that has been historically and currently disenfranchised, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that people get really touchy about when we talk about ethical storytelling. And we talk about like changing the media and not realizing that like the subtle values within our media systems have these re like the examples you gave at the top about the princess and the frog. And we we're talking about Jaws, I think are very clear examples that people can't really dispute. But the examples of like how many women are the star of a right. show and what stories are being told about them and what are the values are how they're dressed is a value. Yep. How they yep. are framed is a value. Once I started to see these things and think about them, uh, grad school was an excruciating experience for me, but it did sort of shake me up and make me aware of a lot of these social issues that I that I, I was not tuned into before. And then like you watch a movie and, and then you're like, oh, the the mechanic is Mexican, you know, and and you see like how often do, and in one movie that's not a big deal, but then if it happens in like eighty percent of television shows, that most of the time when you see somebody that's Hispanic or Latino, and they're doing a mechanical job, that tends to have an impact on how you view the world because again, it's monkey see, monkey do. You're viewing this. And that that becomes your world. It's and I think about this too in terms of like I saw emergency rooms on TV before I was ever actually in one, right? right? And when I went to one, it wasn't like the emergency rooms no. on TV. But I have these impressions of what courtrooms look like, yeah. what emergency rooms look like, yeah. what uh, being a astronaut is like yeah. because I've seen it in the movies or whatever. And that's not usually the way that it is. Do you know what you've been experiencing technically? It's virtual reality. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It's, it's a very old type of proven technology, except it's advanced beyond our knowledge of how it affects us. Because there's always been stories, but now there are stories which interact with your visual cortex. And throughout all of the million years of evolution, the only things that you have seen are things that are real in the world. And then for the last... Uh, maybe I, I actually don't know when television was invented uh, the was 40s 40s it, it came into popular it came into mass popularity in the 50s 50s right? and so like 60 years ago 70 years ago the way we started seeing the world changed or it literally see the world changed and I when I when I had kids, I started to think because I, I used to be an English teacher and my students I would let them pick their research paper topics. And one of them launched out and he's like, I want to show how that whole violence in television stuff is bullshit. And it's not bad for you or blah 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 blah. And then they would go and do the research. And I'm like, Great, go ahead and do that. Sounds sensible. Sure, sounds like bullshit, whatever. And then they come back and they're like, Yeah, like I couldn't find anything to back up what I thought. <laughs> but now 
like and like this was really interesting information and so when i had kids i'm like i don't want my little kids watching a lot of violence watching a lot of this other stuff because and i'm like just like let's try for like as little tv as possible and then you know and and a lot of people were giving me the side eye um there was a I, i can't remember what comic it was i read online where somebody said, yeah, we try to limit our babies, our, our kids' screen time. And somebody's like, oh, do you try to limit their like paper and pencil time too? What what asininity, which is... Uh, Sorry, uh, for those of you who can't see, because this is a podcast, I just rolled my eyes very, very hard. It's a very long there should, eye roll. There should be a sound effect associated <laughs> with that. But, you know, and it seems like a logical argument, although it's it's technically a, a very classic logical fallacy. And then the American Pediatric Society came out with this huge study that said if your child is younger than two, any amount of television will retard their social and language development. And I, I heard that on the news. And I, I stood up and I'm like, I knew I was right. I was right. I was right. <laughs> and yeah. people who interact with my kids, like... Like they come over and my kids hang out and they they talk and then there's only usually a moment where they're like they look at me and they're like what is going on with your kid talking like this and I'm like well we read him a lot of books and he reads books and we we were really careful about TV for the first three or four yeah. years of their life but also I, I want to talk about the Little Rascals there was a movie that came out based on the Little Rascals and I looked at it and it was charmingly true to that old thing and my my uh, my girlfriend was really excited to watch it with our little boy she plugged it in and I, I have some fond rem- you know memories of uh, of the little rascals too and we started watching it and all these the perfect casting in this this quaint and it's like oh simpler times da 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 and then they all go into the he-man woman haters club yeah and and I was like oh Oh, right. Now we need to have a talk about this. And then they go in and then they recite the oath, the He-Man Woman Haters Club oath, where it's like, no women, no whatever, ick, ick, ick. And I'm like, oh. And then there's going to be a boxcar derby. And then it's like, and it's keeps like, no girls, no girls. And Alfalfa is off hanging out with the girls, but he's still part of the group. And I actually, I, I pause it where I, four minutes in, I pause it and I go, I go, we can't do this. And she goes, what happens at the end is the boxcar derby, the, the the celebrity kid that comes in to promote it and that they're also excited to see is a girl. And I'm like, hmm, you would think that would fix it. But what's really going to happen is my kid will hear girls ick, girls ick, girls bad, no girls, us boys, them girls. He'll hear that 500 times and then he'll hear this other thing once. And for a mature person... You know, a maturer person, somebody who's able to deal more in the realm of symbol and logic and rationale, you could say, oh, you've just subverted the expectations. But even so, that older person has been poisoned too. It's just they're able to maybe get a little bit out themselves. Yeah. As opposed to these children. That's always been my argument too in terms, well, not, I didn't phrase it that way, but like, it's cool that you're trying to subvert a thing at the very end, but you literally spent two hours just telling us one thing. Preaching and like, it. there is a power in the, sh- the shock of the subversion, depending on how it's done. But for the most part, I generally think that that doesn't work you because cannot. you've literally been internalizing this message that you've already internalized everywhere else. Yep. And it's just the way it is. And like, one thing might not 
yeah. challenge all of that. And that's like in Moana. One of the reasons I love Moana is love that, Moana. Oh, I love Moana. That's good. That's the best. And. Oh my god! Could we, I would love to. Can I? Can I come on and can we talk? Just talk yes. about. Can we Moana? just have a Moana cast? Oh yes. Sure. But they don't spend the first fifteen minutes of Moana proving that a woman can be a chief. No. He's like he's like someday you're going to be the 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 chief here and and then it, let's take that as red and then the story moves on and you they didn't build up a thing so that they could then subvert it. Yeah. They're just like, well, we're going to go over here. Yeah, and I think about this like uh, from uh, like a feminist critique perspective of the media. I think about like the sort of two ways that this happens. There's that, right, where it's just a given. So like uh, Star Trek Voyager did that. Having a female captain is just normal, and that's right. just the way the world is, and everybody treats her with the respect you would any other captain. Um, so the narrative is already baseline at that, like yeah. you were saying with Moana. And the funny thing on Voyager is what they do is they interact with misogynist races right. every now and again, <laughs> yeah. and they're like, you follow this woman, and the cast is like, or the crew is like, yeah, that's how it goes, <laughs> right? And those moments, I think, are really lovely. Yeah. Um, the other thing, though, that I think is valuable in storytelling is is showing the struggle, right? Yeah. Like, there's a way to do it where you – that is the, the, the arc of the character is, like, per- persevering through a system that is just trying to keep them down and then, like – making it or not making it or whatever the story is but but not erasing the systemic structures of that person which I think is is that's when I start getting grouchy and complainy is when you're like they don't actually acknowledge systemic racism or like systemic misogyny and this world is completely unbelievable and and that see that is where like my big fight is um because to pitch a utopia you always want this verisimilitude in your writing and your storytelling. You, you want the real seemingness of it. Otherwise, it's really hard to get the emotional impact, you know, the, the, all the, the good stuff you want from a story. And that means, like, and a, a real character is flawed. You know, and, like, I, I hit it when people talk about, like, let's go oh, strong female character, strong female character. I'm like, ugh, we needed that maybe a while back. It was a stepping stone. But what we want is good female character. Which means not always strong. Because, like, think about, um, in fact, I'm trying to think of a great dude character, Sherlock Holmes. Is he a strong character? Like, Sherlock Holmes is a hot goddamn mess. Being able to have a beautiful, hot goddamn mess female character is super important. So there's this trend. So I didn't really track this. So I actually wrote my thesis on strong female characters in grad school because I was tired of this bullshit. (laughs) Because I was like, you're just replicating patriarchy. You're just say, you're just making women behave like the values of masculinity, exactly. um, but in sexy outfits, <laughs> right? And I'm like, this is not progress. Uh, it might be a, a step, I, but it's not the last step. Yeah, maybe even an important step, but not a not not sure. Great. And it's nice now that there's like it, this is at the time years ago when I did that. Um, it was like, yeah, this is great. Everything's great. There's more conversation now about people like rolling their eyes because we demand. We demand more as the right. as as people who who engage with media. We're demanding better stories, and yeah. we're demanding more complicated stories. But I noticed in I don't know five ten years ago, my sense of time is super off. But there was this trend of sitcoms or comedies that starred women um, where they were really 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 good at their jobs, but they were a fucking disaster in their personal lives. And I t- didn't quite. 
I didn't wasn't able to fully form an argument uh, like because I didn't study it very well. But th- that also felt weird to me because it was just this thing was happening again and again. And these women were still fucking disasters. And because it was the sitcom format, like you don't really grow a lot right. from that. Right. It becomes very um, you're just a mess all the time. Right. And so that was like a pendulum swing that I'm like, can we just figure out how to have like a lot of different kinds of characters? Right. There you go. That's yeah. I mean, like that is really what we're asking asking for is the fact that Wonder Woman and 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 Black Panther are sort of being like held up as the two big like Wonder Woman is for white women and Black Panther is for black folks, right? And you're like it's crumbs. Like we're fighting for crumbs. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. How about yeah. How about and- we have 20 movies about black folks and women and women of color and uh, disabled people and you know like because then we wouldn't be putting all of our energy into the one thing and expecting it to be everything for everyone of that background. And this is something that I'm currently like in the midst of terror about because uh, my my books are uh, have been optioned by Hollywood and I'm in there working with people but you know writers do not have a ton of, we certainly don't have absolutely control. And something that traditionally happens because like say movies, uh, you have a shorter time period and uh, there's an attempt to simplify. Well, any significant book is more than a two hour movie in terms of the story it's conveying. Um, And my books are much bigger than that. But always what happens during these conversion processes, and, and honestly, even in the revision process in publishing, is there's this fear that people are dumb. And it's like, it's like maybe make the story simpler, maybe remove a character, maybe remove a plot, remove a potential confusion, remove something that might be outside their experience. And um, add all of the exposition, just all of it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a huge, you know, uh, traditional failing with fantasy. Yeah, but um, and uh, but the underlying premise is, is it's sort of like if you were laying it out like a logical syllogism, you'd say, okay, given people are super dumb, given that we want a lot of people to read this book, we need to write it for the dumbest person out there so that everyone can read it. And I actually I read or I, I had the first page of my book, and somebody got back to me with with feedback and they said use the word alloy and counterpoint in the same sentence and those are both kind of specialized terms for music and like metallurgy and somebody who knows one might not know the other it seems like you're maybe asking for trouble there and at that moment i thought huh if you're going to be thrown by that you should know on the first page of the book so you can get out yeah. And I'm going to write the book for people who aren't thrown by that. And I, I made that actual conscious choice. Oh, I got sidetracked by that, but I was heading somewhere. It was about ah, female characters. Mm-hmm. Because in this search for simplicity and ease of story consumption, traditionally what will happen is you will combine female characters. And this has got to be old news to you, right? The I actually talked to somebody. He's like, my editor cracked it. You know, it's like, like there was, you know, the story wasn't working well. He goes, and because he had one female character that was a friend that he hung out with and worked with, and there was another one who was his love interest. It's like, why not just put them together? Um, why then, not? Why not? And it really simplifies the story. Yeah. And it does simplify the story. Of course. But if the only female in your book, which is to say, in the world of your story, there is only one female, and then they get together and love each other, it implies so many dark things. And 
if you have four characters in a novel, a colleague, a friend, you know, a, a, a banter partner slash somebody who doesn't like you very much and a love interest that it does work out with and a love interest it doesn't work out with. And then you combine all those characters into one. This woman is psychologically a, a, a mess, like a, a nightmare psychotic because she cannot fill all those roles in any meaningful way. And that's like one of the ways that like this, this simplification of story Hmm. It has these weird, far-reaching things, and 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 again, it's nothing that that you I, I don't know. No, this is too, I'm very interesting. Times. I mean, I I actually have not had extensive conversations about adapting books to film, so this is this is actually really interesting to me. And when you um, pull, but so actually, is this something you're struggling with right now? And it's something that I wanted to write into my contract mm. that like you cannot combine my female characters because to be completely frank, one of the failings of the first half in Name of the Wind is like there's just not a lot of women in it. So do you get to cuz that's what something I was thinking about too is that if you're like can you can the story change so that the protagonist be a woman and and, and um I assume when a book is optioned they're not really into that because they're optioning it based on what it it currently is. Well, one would hope that they would option it because of what it is and they they were striving endlessly to preserve the purity of the story. <laughs> I, yeah. One would hope. One would hope. Um, like, and working with John John Rogers is is great because uh, he's in charge of my Showtime show. And if you've run into John on Twitter, which I heartily recommend, because he used to be a stand-up comic. You hardly, heartily, hardly, hardly, hardly recommend. It's like, wow, dude, that's me. <laughs> I'm gonna dig on my showrunner halfway through development. Um, he's brilliant. He's clever. He used to be a stand-up comedian, so he's funny, and he is so angry right now because the Republic is crumbling, and I have trouble threading the needle between my rage and like wanting to talk, but he manages to make his point and make it palatable with some humor, whereas I just either am, am fury or nonsense. Yeah. Uh, but him him being in charge of this show and he came at me he's like he's like here's our cast of characters and i look and i go are you giving me three women and two dudes and I'm, he's like yeah he goes this and this and this i'm like i'm like oh john john like <laughs> like like thank you so much like i'm so glad i didn't have to push for this and and he's like he's like he's like you do fucking know me right like he's he's in there too and of course We'll all have to work to make the story work and all of this stuff. Yeah. But I want to actually tie it to what you were saying about fighting for crumbs. And like now we have there, Black Panther. Yeah, y'all have your movie. Good, good job. We've won. But it doesn't work in the same way that having one character, one female character, does not provide true variety and true experience and true representation. You want the dozens of female characters so that one does not represent all. Mm -hmm. As humans, we go from the, the specific to the general and the general to the specific. And if you only have one female in your story, she is the specific and the general, and it fucks up all sorts of mental stuff. Yeah. And if you only have one good movie with, with representation, it's the specific and the general, and it fucks up all the dialogue. So, yeah, yeah, like more, more, more. Yeah. This has been 
an absolute pleasure. If folks want to find you and your work, where might they do that? I, uh, I mean, my book. My, <laughs> are my you book are is, you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, or, uh, just w- Patrick w- Rothfuss. Um, I'm on uh, I'm on Facebook. I am. Uh, you can find my book in any bookstore. Um, cool. Uh, I run a charity called World Builders. It's not the way that I normally sell it to people, but it's a profoundly feminist charity because if you give money to women, the world gets better. And if you give it to dudes, then they fuck it up. I mean, sure. statistically, they have proven this. <laughs> it's true. And so um, I do that as well. If you ever, So what is World Builder? Oh, have me back later and I'll tell you. All that. right. Well, if people want to go look it up on oh, their own to support uh, it, how would they do that? org. We do a couple fundraisers throughout the year. Okay. We support... We vet charities and raise money for them because if you're a geek, you like to know that your money is going to a good place. Cool. But you can get option paralysis because you tend to think, oh, I want to give 50 bucks to somewhere. And then you look into the 150 charities that do this and you don't know when you're being lied to. We do that work for you and we only raise money for it. A-list charities that do good, sustainable shit in the world. Awesome. Yeah, well, that sounds great. Well, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. I, I'm sorry I got I breathed up so much of the air in the room. I got kind of riled. I love. No, about this stories. is absolutely. This was exactly what I wanted this to be. So, cool. Bye. Bye. <laughs>